Welcome to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. Hi, you're listening to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. I'm your host, Maria. Throughout the upcoming weeks and months, PowerShift's project is partnering with the Oxfam In-Depth podcast to share the experiences of people living through the coronavirus pandemic. We'll be hearing from people across the world as they tell us how the virus is affecting their lives and how their communities are organizing to tackle the effects of this crisis. Each episode will weave together different voices on different topics, from how migrant communities and island nations are facing up to the crisis, to the ways in which sexual and reproductive health rights are under attack. We'll be listening to frontline health workers, farmers, and domestic migrant workers to hear not just their experiences, but also their ideas about tackling the magnified inequalities brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. We're also interested in what so-called experts have to say, but we're just not too keen on having their voices at the forefront of this particular discussion. They get plenty of airtime elsewhere. As a first glimpse into the topics we'll delve into in future episodes, we want to share some bits of writing with you that explore issues of power within this crisis. So why power? Well, with the outbreak of coronavirus, now more than ever, we need to talk about power in the way that we're collectively responding to the global crisis it has generated. The pandemic is both magnifying existing problems and creating new ones for communities everywhere. And the people most affected are responding to the outbreak in all sorts of creative ways in order to uphold their survival and livelihoods. So they must have the power to determine their own futures. Listening and elevating these voices is something we've been doing through the PowerShifts project as well, where we publish thinking and action on international development, highlighting issues of power, politics, hope, and justice. Since it started a year ago, PowerShifts is a meeting place for ideas and perspectives that reframe the way we think and talk about development issues in our diverse regions, and which elevate people-led initiatives from the global south. Through discussions that center the voices of those most affected by these so-called development problems, we aim to better understand processes of change in their own local contexts, and also highlight the agency and visions of real people whilst not shying away from complexity. You can check out our content by typing oxfamblogs.org fp2p and follow our new Instagram page as well, which we opened last week with the handle at PowerShifts Project. There we'll also be posting complimentary content to these podcast episodes, so make sure to follow along. So finally, let's get to today's episode, where we bring together extracts from thought pieces, op-eds, and other texts that consider the global power imbalances at play during the pandemic and the power of possibility in this particular historical moment. You can find the links to the full articles in the episode description. To start off, we can begin by acknowledging that COVID-19 has shown a light on the pressing need for transformative systemic shifts in our health and food systems, in the ways in which we produce energy and distribute wealth, and beyond. So let's turn to writers that have considered the following question. How might we reshape communities, organizations, and people as we emerge from COVID-19? First, I'd like us to listen to Arundhati Roy, an Indian author best known for her novel, The God of Small Things. You might have read it. And recently she published an article for the Financial Times in April 2020 titled The Pandemic is a Portal, which I thought was extremely thought provoking because she highlights the need to understand the history shaping forces we're up against 
and cast the opportunity that this pandemic offers in moral terms as a portal. So let's have a listen at my colleague Beth reading out some powerful paragraphs written by Roy. Unlike the flow of capital, this virus seeks proliferation, not profit, and has therefore inadvertently, to some extent, reversed the direction of the flow. It has mocked immigration controls, biometrics, digital surveillance and every other kind of data analytics, and struck hardest thus far in the richest, most powerful nations of the world, bringing the engine of capitalism to a juddering halt, temporarily perhaps, but at least long enough for us to examine its parts, make an assessment and decide whether we want to help fix it or look for a better engine. The mandarins who are managing this pandemic are fond of speaking of war. They don't even use war as a metaphor. They use it literally. If it were not masks and gloves that its frontline soldiers needed, but guns, bombs, bunker busters, submarines, fighter jets and nuclear bombs, would there be a shortage? Whatever it is, coronavirus has made the mighty kneel and brought the world to a halt like nothing else could. Our minds are still racing back and forth, longing for a return to normality, trying to stitch our future to our past and refusing to acknowledge the rupture. But the rupture exists. And in the midst of this terrible despair, it offers us a chance to rethink the doomsday machine we've built for ourselves. Nothing could be worse than a return to normality. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our data banks, our ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through it lightly, with little luggage, ready to imagine another world, and ready to fight for it. Thank you, Beth. I remember when I first read this and how visually stimulating the image of a portal was in my mind, like a literal gateway which we can picture. And it got me reflecting around the power of framing and of narratives. Because framing the crisis as a gateway is a way of tapping into that form of power that grants the possibility to mobilize and connect, just as other framings do the opposite, right? So we're seeing in a moment of crisis, especially one centered around infection, that much of the dominant messaging around official responses have us relying on the fear of the other. And without counter visions and counter narratives, dominant media and certain public figures will actively stoke that fear instead of having us focus on possible outcomes, right? So possibilities and horizons emerging from this critical moment. In fact, many of the metaphors and vocabulary used to explain this corona crisis have relied heavily on militarized language. I would keep hearing, you know, we're at war or we're waging a war against an invisible enemy and we will defeat, you know, governments keep saying we'll defeat. And it's just so heavy on militarized language. But COVID-19 is actually unfolding still. It's an unfolding story that hasn't been fully written. So how can we shape that narrative as it's happening? I think this is a moment, well, an era perhaps that's long past due, to center other types of language. Language of change, of care, that centers policies and paths forward on inclusion, empowerment, and justice. And... Yeah, in this vein of shifting the dominant narrative, I suppose a central exercise is also recognizing which voices have been guiding the debates on responses. Because although COVID's impact in much of the poorer countries is looking pretty grim, the debates are still being framed largely in northern terms of self-isolation, quarantine, personal protective equipment, masks, and all the rest. 
And often this doesn't match up to contextualize realities and priorities in the global south. But of course, this mismatch of agendas and reality isn't anything new, right? So let's move on to the next reading to talk about how coronavirus actually offers a window of opportunity, perhaps for decolonizing our thinking and practice in many post-colonial countries. And for this, we've got an article by David Mwambari for Al Jazeera, published April 2020, on how the pandemic can be a catalyst for decolonization in Africa. So David Mambari is a lecturer in African Security and Leadership Studies at the African Leadership Center based in King's University in London. And his research usually focuses on memory politics and peace building in East and Central Africa. David was actually one of the first contributors to the PowerShifts project with a piece that him and his colleague wrote called The Black Market of Knowledge Production, which explored the ethics of producing knowledge in post-conflict contexts. It's very interesting. I suggest you go have a read. But first, let's hear David reading some of his own recent writing on the decolonial possibility of the pandemic. The pandemic can be a catalyst for decolonization in Africa by David Mwambari. As African countries started cancelling flights from former colonial countries and putting their citizens under quarantine, the myth of Western invincibility fell apart alongside its corollary that only the global south is susceptible to infectious epidemics. In this unprecedented historical moment, many fear for the future. Africans do too. But while they will certainly also go through a tough period, they should see this crisis as an opportunity to fast-track the process of decolonization. This first has to happen on a rhetorical level. The idea that Africa is a continent of disease and death has to be challenged, especially now that the West itself is suffering from major outbreaks and alarming death tolls. While this new crisis might be another challenging moment for African peoples, after the epidemic is over, the continent will have the chance to become more autonomous and self-reliant as the West focuses on its own survival. It will have the opportunity to wane itself off exploitative neocolonial relations. This will be the time to lay the foundations of economic reforms that prioritize African markets, innovation, and local manufacturing, and end the resource curse. A major overhaul is needed across the continent to transition economies from relying on the extraction and sale of raw materials to the West and East, for example, China, and into building up local industries that utilize local resources and turn them into value-added products for exports. This should happen in parallel to the renegotiating various trade agreements with foreign entities, which aim to extract African resources and make African markets dependent on foreign imports. At the same time, after trade arrangements within, outside, the continent should be fast-tracked. For instance, this would be a great time to start implementing the Africa Free Trade Area Agreement, an idea first proposed by Pan-Africanist leaders 
who dreamt of a continent that would first trade with its own borders and not give priority to its former colonial countries. A strengthened continent trade will allow the Africa Union or African regional blocs to assert their agency more globally. This will also be the best time to start cracking down on capital flight and tax evasion by local monopolies and foreign corporations which rob African societies of billions of dollars every year. If implemented properly, the taxation and the repatriation of illicit gains can provide the needed funding for economic overhauls across the continent. This process has to go hand in hand with putting a stop to African dependence on foreign development loans, which have forced governments into austerity for decades, as well as aid and charity, which have curbed local efforts to develop social services. Foreign funding should be gradually substituted with national funding drawn from taxation, repatriation of funds, and new higher value exports. Indeed, there are already a few positive signs. We have recently seen the Africa Union mobilize resources to confront COVID-19. African leaders are speaking with one voice and in a recent teleconference have expressed the need to be united in finding solutions for the pandemic. Such initiatives are encouraging in a crisis that has seen many countries in the West react selfishly and refused cooperation with others. We are living in a historical moment which could engender a sense of reawakening and assertiveness among Africans that could guide us through the difficult journey our ancestors started in the 20th century. Indeed, decolonization may well be fast-tracked because of the threat of a pathogen. Thank you so much, David, for writing this and for reading your words for us. I think a key takeaway here is the focus on thinking about this pandemic as a trigger of sorts for shifting power relations which may be historically founded and maintained, but are definitely not unshakable and quite possibly will yield to an ecosystem of power shifting ideas that can arise out of creative solutions to this crisis. And we have plenty examples of that already. I mean, just in the African continent, we're seeing how universities in Zimbabwe are manufacturing gloves, masks and hand sanitizers. I also heard about a factory in Kenya that turned into a surgical mask assembly line overnight, producing as many as 30,000 masks per day to meet national demand. And we know that South Africa's experience with HIV has helped to drastically reduce cases. I think also what resonates here is how David starts off by saying that all of this first has to happen on a rhetorical level, right? We have to imagine it, we have to name it. It has to become part of our vocabulary because it echoes what we were talking about earlier about the importance of framing and naming the possible. And this reminds me a lot of other writings um, by many authors. I think in particular, Rebecca Solnit's writings on rewriting the world's broken stories, which remind me of this urgent need, as well as this quote that I stumbled on by Ocean Vuong, who's a young Vietnamese-American poet, who says that, I think the future is actually in our mouths. You have to articulate the world you want to live in first. 
So understanding dominant narratives around COVID-19 will help us to see how deep power is used to justify, for example, who gets access to healthcare and who doesn't, but also whose voice is heard and who is silenced. And with this, I want to turn to the last reading we want to share with you. This time it's by the editors of Interface Journal. It's a journal for and about social movements, which you should definitely check out online because they are putting together some brilliant compilations of readings by or on social movements and how they are dealing with the current coronavirus pandemic, joining efforts to amplify the voices of activists and those organizing communities through the crisis. So I'm going to turn to read some of their words now, which clearly lay out why we need to center the voices of those who have been struggling the most, but are also most committed to social change. We are tired of hearing stories about the virus and the crisis that only feature governments and corporations, and where we only appear clapping or as corpses. Movements have been pushing states to take action, fighting for the needs of marginalized groups, developing mutual aid, organizing strikes and rent strikes, and fighting for a better world afterwards. And this stuff matters. The crisis provoked by the coronavirus and then shaped by all the usual power structures, forms of inequality, cultural hierarchies, etc., of our societies, landed in a world that was full of struggle, full of social movements, full of activism. In many different ways, activists have sought to shape how their societies and states respond, while top-down responses have created new problems and sites of struggle. And as many people have said, the future after the virus is still to be fought for. But what does that mean in practice? In the present crisis, some movements and activists are running close to or past the point of burnout from having to fight too many fires at once, while others are stuck, trapped, repressed, or unsure how to move, and others again are experiencing just one more thing to deal with. More death, more poverty, more fear, more repression, more everyday struggle to survive. So this last reading highlights just how important it is to not lose sight of the very real everyday suffering that many are faced with right now especially when we attempt to reimagine our world through the cracks of this crisis. We need to be guided by looking after the most vulnerable and working towards justice by placing care at the very center of what we do and say and act on. And I think a massive challenge will be not to lose the lessons from community-led responses so that locally and globally, we're in a much better position to deal with the big challenges still ahead, which haven't disappeared overnight and have only gotten worse like the climate crisis and increasing inequality. But what I want to rescue from these texts, and in a way of rounding up this first episode, is this power of possibility as a motif that we need to come back to time and time again throughout the story of crisis. Because this viral phenomenon, just like climate collapse and other global issues, poses a different ethical challenge than mere resolution. This is a moment of pain, of rapid changes, and of many open-ended questions. And in Power in the Pandemic, we're hoping to grapple with these questions to meet our collective uncertainty together. We're well underway to bring you the unheard and often forgotten voices during this pandemic to put the power in their hands. So stay tuned. This is also an invitation for all of us to do this transition well. You'll be able to find more resources and blogs from Power Shifts and Views and Voices. The links are in the podcast description. Thanks so much for listening and join us for more.